When I was an undergrad, the professor walked into the room. It was a new class. We were just starting a new uh, semester. And uh, before he had the opportunity to greet the class, the door opened. And this little old, and I mean old, hunched over, gray-haired lady walked through the door. She found her seat. And I thought as she was going to find her seat, I thought, dang, she's old. Well, the professor must have thought she was old because he said to her, um, ma'am, are you in the right class? And she said, well, honey, yes. Why would you ask that question? He said, well, and he stumbled a little. He said, I'm just kind of surprised that you're in this class at your age. Why are you here? And she said, well, I thought about it. And I thought this is the best place to be to find a rich husband and marry him and have a couple of children. Everybody laughed, including me. And he said, no, seriously, why are you in college at your age? And she said, I'm 75 years old. And I have always wanted to attend college and never had the opportunity or the ability. But today, I have the time, I have the money, and I have the desire and that's why I'm here. She said, as she closed, she said, and I have the desire to be all that God wants me to be. And by the way, my name is Sally. And Sally spent the next 13 weeks in our class. And we were all blessed. We ought to clap our hands for Sally, right? You can have, you know... Go back at any age to get your education. It doesn't matter how old you are or maybe what the circumstances are around it. But if you have the ability and you have the time and you have the money, regardless of age, you ought to be able to go back and get education as you desire. The only thing that I would take issue with Sally in what she had to say that day was college was going to make her into the desire that God wanted for her. Because you see, college was not going to give her that ability to be all that God desired for her to be. And we're going to come back to Sally, but just keep Sally in the back of your mind. Today we're going to look at chapter 12, and actually we're going to finish this chapter and uh, so as you're turning to chapter 12 in your Bibles, hopefully you have them, and uh, we'll be reading verses 9 through 12, and while you're getting there, I want to talk a little bit about the first eight verses that we've already covered. Uh, so last week, we kind of jumped out, Ted did the wheat and the tares, and so now we're jumping back into this chapter. The first three verses I preached three weeks ago, and uh, we talked about our bodies being a holy sacrifice, that we are to sacrifice to the Lord, being acceptable in all that He is, all that He has for us. 
and that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul tells us that we are to be in the will and the purpose of all that God has called us to be. You see, that's not necessarily that you have college or really any education. We can be what God has called us to be. And Paul tells us in those first three verses to live humbly before the Lord. And then week before last, verses 4 through 8, we talked about this being a greater thing than what we are by ourselves. that we are in this together, that we are part of the body of Christ. All of us together make up the body of Christ. And Paul said, though there are many members, there's only one body, and that God gives us these gifts for the purpose of the unity and the upbuilding for the glory of God, for the body of Christ. And we talked about being one body, though many people that day. And now we come to these verses. And this is a continuation of Paul's thought in this text. So listen to what Paul has to say, beginning with verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Blessed are those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. I would pray today, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move in us in such a way that we would hear what you would have to say. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I want to begin with a few statements before we actually get into the text, because I believe it's important for us to understand what is going on. A person who has been justified, as Paul talked about in 12.1, by the grace of God is to present his or her body as a living sacrifice. And this person is to exercise the spiritual gifts of the Lord that the Lord has given them. And when we 
present our bodies as a living sacrifice, when we have renewed our mind, transformed into the likeness of Christ, our very life is to be that which is evident of our salvation to those around us. In other words, people should be able to see in you and through you, in your words, in your actions, your faith, your belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, Christian living is a supernatural living. Christian living is a supernatural living. In a sense, it's abnormal, unnatural living, living that is not natural, uh, that cannot be uh, contained or obtained by those that are unregenerated, those who are lost, those who have not come to Christ. The supernatural living is conducted in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, Paul says in Philippians 1.27. Supernatural living is to obtain or have the attitude within ourselves of that which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 2.5, and we are to humbly work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which is Philippians 2.12, but in working out that salvation, we can no longer or no way accomplish it on our own without the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in us, just like our new birth was accomplished by the work of God, so is our life as we live it out as redeemed as transformed a new creation in Jesus Christ. Supernatural living is not mystical. It is not undefined. In fact, it has sincere intentions. In fact, it is practically living out by conscience obedience to what God is calling us to, and that is standards of righteousness. In fact, he has ordained that we conduct ourselves within the parameters, within the, the characteristics, within the obedience, the righteousness that he has, has called us to. If you remember, Paul told us that we are no longer slaves to the law, slaves uh, bound in, in sin, bondage of sin, but he did tell us that we are slaves to righteousness and that we're to live that righteous life committed to. So we are free from sin, but we are enslaved to righteousness. And so Paul has laid this doctrine out as we began with chapter 1, and we ran through chapter 11, and now he begins with this chapter 12 and these doctrinal standards of justification, sanctification, and that we're to live this life, this dedicated Christian life for him. And throughout the rest of the epistle, he tells us, gives us these standards, these obedience that we're to live into in the word and to glorify God and his name in it. Now, as we get into verse 9, as I read and through the rest of this chapter, there are this list is It's not an exhausted list, but it's comprehensive. It's got 25 mandates here for us to live into. 
And so, you ready? Did you bring your lunch? Now, I'm not going to go through all 25, so you'll be glad. But I'm going to group them together. If I went through all 25, which I could, and it would be interesting to do that, but it would take half a year to do it. So I've grouped some of them together, and I'm going to highlight them. I'm not going to expound heavily on all of them, but we're going to look at a few. And I want you to understand how he has broken up these verses, 9 through 13, are going to be manifested as far as the obedience of the church, how we as the church are to live out this obedience to Christ. And as I said, it's not an exhaustive list, but he's given us this understanding with this mantra of sincere love. And then we'll look at verses 14 through 21, and that will talk to us on how we live out this obedience out in the world. So first, verses 9 through 13, this describes the sincere love that we have among ourselves, among the church, as we live out this obedience in the body of Christ. And he says, abhor or hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, we are talking about hating the evil that is in the person, not hating the person so often we reject the person and everything, and that's not what Paul tells us to do. He says, do not cling to the evil, but cling to what is good. Hate that which is evil. I've had people say to me, well, I, I don't think of God as a, a God who would hate, and then I don't think God would want me to hate over and over in Scripture, there are places where we are told to hate things. And if you go to Malachi, it actually says, God hates divorce. The very words there. The Greek is pretty clear. Same that's in here with the Hebrew there in Greek. And in the Greek here, it is the word, we are to hate the evil. We do not reject the person. Hypocritical love pretends so often pretends to be Christian, but it just does the opposite. And so hypocritical love rejects the person. We look at the person and we say, we reject because you're living into this style of life or this standard that we do not agree with, we're going to reject you and everything that you are a part. And what happens is, is when someone comes into the church and they come in and they don't look like us or dress like us or talk like us or have hair like us or maybe their skin doesn't look like us or their skin may look like us and they have pictures on it. And we think, wait a minute, this isn't right. And we reject the person. The church has done a terrible job terrible job of this. People coming in to look for peace and joy and love. They're looking for a message to hang on to, something to change their life. They're coming to hear the Word of God. They're seeking something, and the church says, oh, wait a minute, you don't meet our standards, so no, this doesn't work. One Harbor Church 
we worshiped last Sunday in One Harbor Church. I said the message was, it was really a good message. Donnie preached about the same length I do, about 40 minutes. And uh, he's preaching through 2 Corinthians, and he was talking about the week. But if you were to look at One Harbor Church, they are looking like the community that God has placed them in. You see, there was probably 300 in that congregation, and I would guess that about 30 to 40% of the men in that congregation had a hat on, and they never took it off the entire time. The worship team, seven people, one lady singing, six musicians. Five out of the six musicians wore hats on stage, and one of them had it backwards. All of them were basically tattooed up. Donnie came up in his flip-flops and shorts and his nice shirt hanging out, you know, with not tucked in and a beard down to here. Squared off. And he preached, man, a, a solid sermon. And there were people of color, and there were people of different ethnic backgrounds, and there were def- people that spoke different languages. And they heard the gospel. And they were welcomed by everyone at the first door, and the second door, and in the lobby. And in the third door, we're glad you're here for worship. We've got to stop rejecting just because, and you fill in the blank. The second thing that Paul talks about here is, he says, notice, uh, I want you to notice that sincere love remembers the relationship. The relationship is the concern. And this leads in to what we have just talking about. If we don't reject, then what we're doing is building a relationship with people. And as you build a relationship, you are able to share that. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, in Christ, in brotherly love. We are brothers and sisters of each other. Now, some of you that grew up in the Baptist church, or if you were in my church, in the Wesleyan church that I grew up in, you heard brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. I actually think, think that is great language because it reminds me that Rich is my brother in Christ. We are related. We belong to the family of God. And when you begin to build relationship with one another, when things begin to happen, when Satan begins to pour himself in to try to tear that apart, I remember our relationship. And I want it to be whole. I want it to be right. Paul says, devote yourselves, one another, to this brotherly love. We are to accept one another. We are to forgive one another. Third, Paul says, sincere love regards others more deserving than yourself. Give reference to one another in honor 
I love the Phillips translation here. I've told you that as I'm preparing, I read different translations. I, on Sunday, I use the NASB. But Phillips wrote this verse that were translated this verse. Be willing to let other men or women have the credit. So the practical application is you're willing to let someone take the credit when you actually deserved it. Now, that's tough. I will have to admit, when you have done something and you're proud of it and you're hoping people see it and say, yes, sir, that a boy, and someone else takes the credit, it's like, dang, that hurts. But I'll tell you, I, I saw a, saw, a, a sign um, years ago and... Uh, I remembered the sign, and I try to remember it when those type things have happened in my life. Sharif's going to put it on the board. There is no limit to the good that one can do if they don't care who gets the credit. Think about that. So if you, if you really don't care, and there are times certainly we want the credit and we deserve it, but this is a reminder that you can enjoy yourself of doing good deeds and doing what is right and doing things that maybe you deserve that credit for, but if someone else takes it or no one acknowledges it, it doesn't make it less than. It can make it right, acknowledged because God sees all that you do. Satan wants to tell you, man, you deserve. And God says, don't worry about the credit. Just do what I'm calling you to do. And I guarantee you, it's going to work out for you. Fourth, sincere love retains enthusiasm despite setbacks. The verse here don't lag behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It's probably one of the pieces here, and you could take each of these different ones. As I said, there's 25, around 25 of these uh, adages here that he gives us, and there's three in this. And, and so grouping them together, we need to remember that as we walk in the spirit, we're to be enthusiastic. And there are times when our hope gets dashed or there's times when things just go awry. They don't go the way that we want them to. We get these setbacks. But Paul says we need to be diligent. We need to move forward. We need to be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord at all times, rejoicing in the hope, rejoicing even in those times when your spiritual zeal may want to be lacking. Then fifth, he says, sincere love rejoices in hope. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And I believe these three match so perfectly because think of it this way. You can rejoice in your hope because you're patient in the affliction or the tribulation. And as you're patient in the tribulation, it's because you have bathed it in prayer. So really, you start with prayer. When you start with prayer, when tribulation comes, 
you will persevere. And as you persevere, you will begin rejoicing in the hope, knowing that God is there. God is a part of that. God is knowing all that you are doing, all that you are facing. And so when trials come in your life, begin with prayer. We'll go back to Philippians, and you know the verse, 4, 6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Take them to him. Be faithful in the prayer. Be able to be patient in your affliction. Don't drop out. Don't cop out. Don't quit. Stay in there. Even when the affliction or tribulation, when this hardship comes into your life, don't be resentful. Don't be angry. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And the times that I have remembered that and done that well, I actually can rejoice in the hope that's before me, knowing that God knows more than I do. He has a thousand and myriad, just thousands and thousands of ways to answer prayers compared to the way I would want it to be answered. And so let's just trust that God knows what he's doing as tribulation comes, as hardships come. Take it to the Lord in prayer, and you will find that you would be able to rejoice in it. And then the last thing that he says here for the church, these are the things that the church needs to be about doing. Sincere love responds to the needs, contributing to the needs of the saints. He says in that verse 13, practicing hospitality. Now, we know that the government has taken over a lot of needs in the community within our nation over time. Um, we, we know the Social Security Act of the 30s and what it was supposed to be about. We've seen the welfare and Medicare and Medicaid and all of the other things that have come about where the government has stepped in to try to meet the needs of the community. Well, in the early church, the church met the needs of the community. They would look, they would evaluate at what was going on within the community, the body of Christ, as Paul tells us. And those that would gather, those that had need, if someone needed something, they would try in their best to meet the need of that, caring for one another. And so here Paul reminds us, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, that we as the church need to be watching out for those that are a part of our body, a part of us, so that we can help with the needs of those around us. And I will tell you that Hope Church does that well. And I hope I hope he won't, uh, I didn't ask him ahead of time, but I think we've got a good enough relationship. I was putting this together, and I was thinking about Ron. And the first time I ever saw Ron, I saw him coming up this sidewalk with the, the walker. And as, as he came into this fellowship, we welcomed him. And, and I watched the church rally around him, and many within the church do things that he needed because he had a need. He'd been hit by a daggone truck. And so he had a need for us to meet. And he is a part of us. He is my brother in Christ. And why wouldn't I help him or anyone else? 
I have people that come to the door, and many of you give money into the, the pastor's fund. And they knock on the door, and they've got a need, and, and I'm able to take money out of that fund to help with that need. Even some within our own midst that just go without saying where they fall on either hard time or hardship and come to me and we're able to help those within our midst that has a need. You do well, church, and we need to continue. Paul moves on in describing this sincere love that we're to have, not only exhibited within the church, but exhibited outside of the church to the non-Christian world around us. And he does this in verses 14 through 21. Now, many of you tomorrow morning will get up and you will go to your office or your work or uh, even if you're retired, you're going to be around people that you associate with during the week, that you talk with. It could be family, friends, neighbors. But you're going to be a part and around other people this week outside of the church called Hope. And Paul tells us there are ways that we are to interact with those people around us in the world. The first thing he says is sincere love speaks well to its persecutors. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now that means don't badmouth. Don't speak harshly. Speak well. My dad and mom, and you've probably told it to your children, said if you can't say something good to someone, don't say anything at all. Uh, that's probably a pretty good adage to remember. There are those that um, upset you and those that will uh, challenge you in what you believe and the way that you persevere is to speak truth in love. And if sincere love is a part of your mantra, a part of your makeup, then how you respond to those that would persecute you it's going to be in love. Secondly, he says, sincere love adjusts to the moods of those around you. And you say, well, that's interesting. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. I really think that he puts rejoice first here because so often envy comes into play a lot in our human nature. And, and so often when we see someone really getting blessed or really doing well, uh, it's hard for us to say, I'm so glad for you. Because the whole time we're thinking, I wish that was me. But rejoice with those who are rejoicing, those who have had good fortune, those who are smiling and cheering and happy. Rejoice with them. Maybe some of that rejoicing for, from them will rub off on us. But also, he says, mourn with those who mourn. Um, Friday night, I, was, I had the honor to do Ken Guy's service over at Renaissance. And um, I would say most of you do not know Lynn's brother-in-law, knew Ken, Ken uh, Guy, uh, Lynn's brother-in-law. But he was a great guy. And he, he was one of those that just had an infectious laugh and his whole desire was to get you to laugh. I shared um, in the service that 
when I was marrying or officiating his daughter's wedding, Ken came up to me. It was at the North Carolina Aquarium. And before the service, Ken pulled me aside and says, you're going to do something in the service, right, that's just going to blow us away. He said, we got to laugh. And I said, if I do that, Katie will kill me. He said, it's okay. <laughs> that's just the kind of guy Ken was. Um, I got to tell you this, though. Should I tell So Ken chose a song. You know the song, Scars in Heaven. That was the song that Ken chose for his funeral service. And so after I'm finished and after Bill has done, Bill Joyner has done a tribute to him, right before the honor guard's going to come and do the 21-gun salute and do the flag, we play Scars from Heaven. And Ken got the last laugh because it went from normal speed to higher speed to higher speed till Mickey Mouse was singing Scars from Heaven. And we were all rolling. I mean, all of us were in tears listening to this song. I said, Ken got the last laugh. We were mourning with him, but we were laughing and rejoicing because I'm sure that somehow Ken would have really appreciated that that happened in his service. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Look for people around you. You're not going to whistle when someone comes into your office or cubicle and says, I just lost my best friend, and you whistle while you work. That's, we don't do that. Third, sincere love does not show partiality, Paul says. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people in lower positions. Don't be conceited or contrite. So, when Jesus would go to, from uh, Galilee and would go to Jerusalem, we all know, I think, that instead of going to the Hilton in downtown Jerusalem, he went to Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house. He would go stay with them. As Jesus would enter a town and people would come to him, whether it was the tax collector in a tree or whether it was someone that uh, was, had sin or was suffering or whether it was a rich man or a poor man or a man with Leprosy, whomever was around Jesus, he took time to see them. Listen to what I said. He took time to see them and their affliction or where their situation was. And he did not ignore them. Paul tells us if we've got this sincere love within us of Christ and we are out in the world we're to live in this harmony, and that's hard, but that's what we are called to do, to live in harmony with one another. Fourth, he says, sincere love is not sneaky or underhanded. And here again, and three times in this passage, he says, do not pay evil for evil or to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Notice he says, all men, all people we are to respect what is right. And Paul is trying to silence that revenge, the insults, 
that we scheme to give back to repay. We have seen in our society, we continue to see it over and over again, where sides are taken and uh, payback is trying to be given. Um, It's just rampant in our society. And Paul tells us, don't stab someone in the back. Don't stab them in the back even if you feel like that they have done you wrong. Because the next thing that he says goes along with this. Don't be sneaky and underhanded. And then he says, if you have sincere love, it's going to seek to live at peace with one another, with everyone. If possible, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, you've heard this, it takes two to tango. I think it should be, it takes two to tangle. Because if you will watch yourself, when someone has wronged you, if you will step aside, if you will gather yourself together in that conflict, often how you respond can neutralize all of that. Now, I will tell you, just as it is in forgiveness, You can offer forgiveness to someone, but unless they're willing to receive it, all you can do is offer, ask for forgiveness for something you have where you have wronged someone. You cannot make them forgive you, but you can ask to be forgiven. In conflict, you can step aside. You can look at your own actions. You can look at your own attitudes. And you can see how sincere love would come into play. Paul reminds us, as far as it depends on me, live at peace with everyone. Hard. And then finally, he says, sincere love doesn't try to get even with others. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Revenge is probably one of the most natural human responses. We all have experienced it. We all probably at some point have tried to reel or lash that out. And it's often because someone has treated us some way. And so what we say to justify, we say, well, I'm going to teach them a lesson. I'm going to give back to them what they gave to me. Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? And so we try to justify it. And what happens is we forget that we ourselves have injured others. We have lashed out or been in conflict with others. And we may have forgotten, but God has not forgotten. God has remembered. It's kind of like that scene where Jesus walks up and the the Pharisees and those that had gathered and they have the woman in adultery and, and, and they've got stones in their hands and Jesus says, those of you without sin cast the first stone and it's like, whoo, wait a minute. And they drop their stones and walk away and Jesus looks at the lady and where are your accusers? We have to be careful about carrying out revenge that belongs to the Lord. None of us are without sin. 
that our sin has been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. And so he calls us to live this righteous life before him, with him. And we must leave revenge to God. Paul says, God is the one. Leave that room for him, for his wrath. He knows the situations. It is up to him. God alone claims the right of vengeance because he alone can bring about redemption, not us. I think about Jonah going to Nineveh. You remember what happened, right? All of Nineveh with his preaching was saved. And then you remember what Jonah said to God? Well, well, God, you didn't do what you were... You said you were going to wipe them out. He wanted them all dead. He, he, he wanted vengeance of the Lord right there. But the Lord was redemptive. He sent Jonah to, to preach, and people came to faith in Jesus Christ, or in God in this case. And so... Leave that vengeance to the Lord. And the Lord can make the difference. I read a story. Um, this, this young man, he joined the army and he was a Christian. And I don't know how you grew up, but I was taught. I don't do it to today, but I did as a child. I was supposed to kneel by my bed to say my prayers before I went to bed, and I did every night. And then, you know, as a teenager, you grow up, and then you lay in bed, and I still say my prayers, and I do today. But this particular man at 18 years old had been taught to kneel by his bed and say his prayers before he went to sleep. And so he joined the army, and he remained with that habit. Now, those of you like me that have been in the military... You kneel beside your bed in a barracks full of other soldiers? Yeah, you're going to get it. And he did. He got all of the mocking, all of the stuff. One night as he was kneeling, saying his prayers before he went to bed, one of the bunkmates across the aisle was taking off his muddy boots from their hike that, that day, and he took the first boot and threw it and hit him beside the head. And he took the second boot and threw it and hit him beside the head. And the guy that was kneeling and saying his prayers didn't miss a beat. He just grabbed the boots and set them down by his bunk and he continued his praying and then got in bed and went to sleep. The next morning, the man who owned the boots got up and the boots were beside his bed. And the boots had been cleaned and polished and ready for wear. True story. He was so broken by the action that he went over and asked the Christian for forgiveness. And the story doesn't end there. Because the relationship was bridge together, the man that threw the boots came to the Lord at a later time through the witness of the Christian. Church, we are called as believers to have a sincere love in Jesus Christ 
we are to have these characteristics that the Holy Spirit gives us, that we are able to show the world that we are living this supernatural life that God has given us. You see, Sally did not at 75 need school to be what God created her to be. What she needed was to love God with all of her heart, to make him Lord over her life. She needed to love her neighbor as she loved herself. And God would make her, transform her into everything he wanted her to be. I think too often we gloss over scriptures. We hear them or read them or we come on Sunday morning and it's the, oh yes, we've gotten through that. And So I want to issue you a challenge today. I want you to consider for the next seven days, I want you to read chapter 12. It's 21 verses. And if you read it slow, you can do it in less than four minutes. But I hope you'll take your time to hear what it says. Now, I'm not asking you to replace it with your other devotion that you do. I want you to, for seven days, that's all I'm asking, seven days, folks. If you can't give me four minutes for seven days, come on, give it to the Lord. I want you to read for seven days, chapter 12, and let these verses sink in. I'm going to take the challenge. For the next seven days, I'm going to read 21 verses, chapter 12 of Romans. And I would ask you to join with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these verses. Thank you for the love that you have shown for us. And we pray that this sincere love in Jesus Christ would be all that we are, a part of who we are, as not only we live together as the body of Christ here called Hope, but as we go out into the world and interact with others. Father, we love you. And we want to answer the call to love others around us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.